Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. Matthew chapter number 19. Matthew 19. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 13 through 22. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 22. And our subject this morning really is in the form of a question. And the question is part of the entirety of the question, but I just want to introduce this. What good thing shall I do? What good thing shall I do? If you'll notice with me, begin in verse number 16. We're going to go back and touch on verses 13 through 15. But I want you to see the context of the question that's being asked uh, by what's referred to as a young man. In verse 16, it says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do? And here's the rest of that question, that I may have eternal life. And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. This particular passage we're going to spend most of our time with this morning deals with Jesus' request or response to that question, rather. But in verses 13 through 15, as a kind of a precursor to this question, I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago that chapter 19 contains uh, really three meetings that our Lord had with individuals or groups. And this particular text deals with the next or the, the last of those two meetings. First of all, we're met with people in verses 13 through 15 who are bringing children to the Lord. Uh, the Bible says that then there were brought unto him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. Uh, this, is quite an, this is quite an event that's taking place here. Uh, the, the disciples uh, are rebuking people who are bringing these children unto Jesus, and he stops them from doing that. He rebukes them, and it says, Jesus says in verse 14, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 15, he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Really, there's a couple characteristics we see about our Lord. We really see the gentleness in which he dealt with people as they brought little children unto them. We see Jesus here is bestowing upon these children a blessing. He's blessing them. He's praying for them. Uh, notice that Jesus demonstrates a lower sense of humility than his disciples do. The disciples are saying, you know, don't bother our Lord with this. Stop bringing these children unto him. And Jesus says, don't do that. I'm paraphrasing, of course. He says, don't do that. Don't keep them from coming unto me. And he says, because this is the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Not that it's filled with children, in essence, but that they declare, he declares they are the kind of people in whom the heavenly kingdom is made up of. We've learned about that in our studies and our exposition to the book of Matthew. These are the type of people, the type of characters who enter into the kingdom. Notice Jesus doesn't baptize them, but he does bless them. He doesn't stay long. He blesses and then he moves on to his next appointed work. And that's where we find him in verse 16. We're told about Jesus' meeting with a young man. A young man who we're going to see a lot about him. A young man that is very confident. A young man who is very respectful. Uh, 
a young man who is self-sufficient, but sadly, a young man who is very wrong. This young man has a false belief about how he can obtain eternal life. He phrases it in a question, not in a way in which he truly thinks there isn't, but in a way that he truly believes that if there's something he can do, he's capable of doing it. He's very self-righteous. He's very self-sufficient. Notice it says that he came unto Jesus, and he refers to him as good master. Now, there's a little bit of a, a discrepancy among some who believe that this was a term or a phrase that was not as respectful as it seems. A master was just a teacher that all this young man is doing is acknowledging, hey, you're a good teacher. I don't take that position. I don't believe he was being disrespectful. I believe that this young man was coming to Jesus in a sense of sincerity. But you'll notice, again, we see the error of his ways. He says, what good thing shall I do? Now, if we were just talking about good things, that answer, Jesus could have responded with a lot of things. He could have said, what good thing? Well, you can go and feed the poor. You go feed the hungry. Uh, you could go and uh, provide uh, a, some sort of a service for someone. But the young man's question was very specific. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This young man was a self-sufficient young man. He was self-sufficient in the reality that he truly did seem to believe that there was one good thing that he could do and it would be enough to obtain eternal life. Not only did he think there was something that could be done, notice the confidence in himself that he could and would do it. When you ask a question like this, you're asking a very open-ended question. Good master, what one good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What one thing would it be? You tell me what it is and I'll do it. So he's very self-sufficient. He's very self-righteous. Now, it's interesting that he does have some doubts about something because he's asking the question, how do I obtain eternal life? Now, on the surface, again, uh, us as uh, believing that salvation is of the Lord, and we know that to be true, uh, we might be quick to pass him off and pass out in judgment. Uh, what's his problem? How could you possibly think that there's one good thing you could do that you'd obtain eternal life? Can I just say to us this morning that we don't just cast off people who have this belief. This young man does feel the need that he's lacking something. He feels the need that there's something that I don't have. And he's trying in his own righteousness, his own sufficiency, what good thing could I do? He did have some doubts about what his eternity was. Or he wouldn't have asked the question. He could have said, I've already done everything. There's nothing else for me to do. What good thing shall I do, he says. This young man may have even lived a life that many people admired. They may have looked at him and said, he lives a good life. He's a good moral person. He doesn't really get into trouble. He doesn't do a lot of things. But he, even he sensed that he was lacking something. But now here's the question. If it should turn out that there was one thing lacking, could he actually do it? If there is just one thing, could, and maybe we'll add this, would he do it? 
That's really what's at the heart of what's happening here. Uh, Jesus is dealing with a very self-sufficient young man. Secondly, verse 16 shows us that this young man was also very respectful. Uh, he did not come to them like the Pharisees came. Remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came really with the entire purpose of discounting Jesus. This man's not coming with a desire to discount. He's very respectful. Now, again, we could argue about the use of the term good master. We could say, is he doing that in a mocking way? Is he doing that? I don't believe the text gives us any indication to think that he was mocking Jesus. His question to him was of great importance. What good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Think about having an admirable life. Think about having a life that other people respect. Think about a young man who's a very respectful man, a very, uh, a very man who's well-liked, uh, he's well-respected, but he's lacking something. That's what this young man is doing. I would stop here and actually ask the question, and maybe challenge us, think about this, wouldn't it be a great joy or a blessing to have people ask us that question? See, instead of mocking people who say, what do you mean? You think you can do one good thing? See, sometimes we can get so harsh with our theology that we think, well, that's foolishness. Nobody's crazy enough to think you could do something good. You don't earn your salvation. Don't you know, brother, it's salvation is of the Lord? Not everybody knows that. Not everybody thinks that way. I would be thrilled if some young man walked up to me in a coffee shop somewhere and said, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That's about as good as a question of what must I do to be saved? So don't look at this question as a question that's a negative. This is a question of a man who is very respectful, but yet he's lacking something. Now, again, as this narrative goes on, we realize he's lacking a lot. But dear friends, we need to leave, use these opportunities not as opportunities to mock people about our theology and what we know and what they don't know, but to use it as a means to say, at least they're asking the question. When's the last time somebody asked you about how do I know Christ? See, there's, there's a beauty in this. It's a suitable question. It's a suitable question from a self-sufficient, respectful young man. He was seeking. What was he seeking? He asked about eternal life. He wanted to know what he could do to gain eternal life. And whatever Jesus said, here's what his attitude was. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. Thirdly, about this young man, he was a hopeful young man. He asked this question with the real belief that he would inherit eternal life by doing the one good thing. What does that tell us about him? That means he was hopeful that there was eternal life. And secondly, he believed in a future state. He believed that there was something beyond the grave. He was serious about this. This is not a young person mocking a preacher. This is not a young man mocking Jesus. This is a young man who is very sadly wrong, but he's respectful and he's hopeful. 
He was serious, concerned about his eternal state. However, his problem is already revealed. His problem was as he was relying on what he could do. Therein is man's big problem when it comes to eternity. What can I do? Now, church, we understand it because we hear it and we know the Bible teaches that. We already know the answer to that. Nothing. There is no one good thing. There is not a million things you could do that would be good enough that would allow you to obtain eternal life. We know that, but not everybody does. See, the gospel doesn't always present itself in the same way. Sometimes the gospel comes forth in a question like this where somebody is asking a searching question. And it's a gospel conversation. He expected that he could work. This is very similar. Now again, I know sometimes we're so far removed from the culture in the day in which they lived, but this would have been a common belief, especially in Israel, especially under the teachings of the Pharisees who were teaching you could be saved by good works. So his question is not too far out of bounds. The Pharisees, remember, they were, they were, they were pummeling the area with works-based salvation. He is speaking to what the culture believed. So what do I need to do, good master? Where is it? What do I need to do? So he expected that eternal life would come by doing some good thing. At this point, maybe he's already hoping that Jesus would say, young man, you've already done enough. You don't need to do anything more. I've observed your life from a distance and I see you've been a very respectful young man. You were a pretty good child growing up. You, you obeyed your parents. You, you, you went to synagogue. You've done everything right. And I think you're doing just fine. Maybe he hoped that. But Jesus, of course, is going to take a completely different approach to what this young man, I believe, is expecting to hear. So we see about this young man, self-sufficient, respectful, hopeful. He believed in a future state, and he believed that eternal life could come by doing some good thing. Now notice how Jesus answers the question in verse 17. And he said unto him, why callest thou me good? Now he's referring back to him, calling him good master. There is none good but one. Jesus pretty much declares right there, no one is good enough except one. That is God. Jesus is announcing to this young man that he's standing before God. But if, now again, we've got to be very careful about how we interpret Scripture, but if that will enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, again, Jesus as the master teacher is doing something uh, we would struggle to do and <laughs> the way he's handling this. Because by asking this question, Jesus is letting this young man know that he's, who you're speaking to is more than just a man. Did this young man really mean it? Did he really mean good? If he really means good in the sense that Jesus means, then Jesus is now letting him know you are speaking to God. The argument's very clear here. Either Jesus was good or you shouldn't call me good. 
Because there is none good but God. Jesus is beginning the process of telling him and showing him, you don't call someone good unless they're God. Now again, this is a young man that doesn't fully understand all this. Now, what is Jesus doing by the ground of the question about having eternal life through a good work? Jesus answers him on his own ground of understanding. Now, I think this is a key. This is very much a key when we talk about the gospel, we talk to people. Remember, you are on a ground of understanding that some people are not on. What Jesus does is he takes how the young man understands eternal life and how it comes. What does the young man understand? He understands or believes that eternal life comes by doing good works. So Jesus is going to turn this around and say, okay, if your belief system is good works get you eternal life, here's what it's going to require of you to obtain it. That's why Jesus says, if thou will enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus has a masterful way in which he's teaching this young man. So Jesus answers him on his own ground, and he says that eternal life by the law, if eternal life comes by the law, then it requires the keeping of all of its commandments. The reality is, is the keeping of the law, if a person could do it, would gain eternal life. There was only one who could keep the law though, right? Only Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly. Jesus is bringing this young man to see what he's lacking. Remember, he's asked a good question. And Jesus is now meeting him on that ground. If thou enter into life, keep the commandments. No one, beginning at Adam, has ever fulfilled and kept the law perfectly since. Not one. Did this young man think he could do it? By his understanding, yes. By his understanding, he thought he could keep the law. Yet on the ground of the law, and what the law demands, and what the law commands, if he would deserve eternal life as a reward, then he would have to be as good as God. That's what Jesus is leading him to see. In order for you to gain eternal life, you've got to be as good as God. Folks, let's just stop there and think about it for a moment. When you talk about good works and you think your good works give you salvation or add to your salvation, in order for a single work to be good enough, you've got to be God. And you're not. And neither am I. None is good enough. What would he have to do? He would have to keep the commandments to perfection. What Jesus is doing is he is setting before this young man, here's what the way of works looks like. Remember, the covenant of works was set out before Adam and Eve in the garden and they failed. And because of their failure of the covenant of works, of course, now it's the covenant of grace. Adam and Eve failed to keep the works. They could not keep the law. But what Jesus is doing is setting forth the way of works before him, not so he's giving him a way to gain eternal life, but that the young man would see the weakness of his thinking. The fault in his thinking. And look for salvation in some other way. 
Because here's what, the, here's what the law requires. Does the fulfillment of the law require us to do one good thing? No, we're required to keep the whole thing. That means in order for you to obtain eternal life by good works, you would have to keep every law of God perfectly. Without any slip. The law requires only he which is good. He can't lack in a single work. He could not lack in a single thought. He could not lack in a, certain, in a single attitude. He couldn't lack in a single performance. In order for this young man to get what he was asking, he would have to keep the law in the same manner in which Jesus Christ kept the law. The law requires perfect obedience. What does perfect obedience give? Righteousness. Righteousness gives a title to everlasting life. In this very case of what this young man is asking, what Jesus is presenting before him, the least and smallest failure in keeping the law to a perfection results in eternal death. Now he's going to unpack this for this young man. It wasn't one good thing. Christ is showing this young man in order to show it's impossible to obtain eternal life by the works of the law because no man can perfectly keep it. Folks, I know, I know, we, and I've been guilty of this. We hear people talk about, well, my good works are part of salvation. And sadly, they sincerely and truly believe that. I would call us and challenge us to not be so, and I'm not talking about compromise, and I think, I think you folks that know me well enough know, I'm not saying we compromise and give them credit to say good works. Yeah, I can see your point. It's, good works never save. But do you realize how many opportunities you're, you're losing for evangelism when people believe they're saved by good works? Don't ridicule and mock them. Meet them on the ground in which they're standing. Show them why works can't save. I see so much really bad evangelism and bad theology where someone says, I, I believe baptism is part of my salvation. And someone says, and excuse my language, well, that's just stupid. Do you really think that's the most effective way? What if they really believe that? You know, I, we, we get so caught up and we take so much credit for our own biblical knowledge that we don't remember what would we be apart from the grace of God? As if we learned that on our own, as if we were such Bible scholars that we came out of our study after a seven-day sabbatical in our study and we didn't come out, we didn't eat, we didn't sleep. We came out and we said, I've, I've arrived at this great conclusion. Works don't save. You didn't get that on your own. You got that by the grace of God. You know, so many times we're arguing with people and we're arguing about the wrong thing. This young man, he was wrong, sincerely wrong. But Jesus wants him to see his weakness. 
Jesus is using language to loose this young man from a faulty foundation. You know, if we really are burdened for people the way we are, we'd be more concerned about the faulty foundation they're standing on than being right. Or being known as the the church theologian or the, the neighborhood theologian. Look, I'm all for it. But we've got to understand where people are. This young man was dependent upon his own good works. Jesus' words were that to drop his tendency to be self-sufficient and to rely upon himself. Now again, this, this narrative, it's a beautiful narrative going back and forth. I wish it had a different ending. Verses 18 and 19, He saith unto him, which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now again, we could begin to think, this young man has really got a lot of bravado in him. Jesus is basically saying, okay, here's what the requirements are, here's what this is. Keep the commandments. And what does the young man say? Which one? As if he could keep one of them. Remember, his question is, what good thing, single, can I do? And he still wants to know, what one thing can I do? Which commandment? Everyone in this room has broken them all. So have I. If we just stopped at the 10, and everybody thinks, oh, you just got to keep the 10 commandments. That's not the whole law. Every one of you have broken all 10 of them. You say, I've never committed adultery. You have in your, eye, you have in your heart. So have I. I've never coveted. Yes, you have. You have in your heart. I've never stole anything. Yes, you have. I've never lied. Yes. I've not bear false witness. We've all, we're guilty of all 10 of them. And even if we weren't, the Bible says if we break one, we're guilty of all. Yet this man says, which one? Which? Jesus doesn't answer with one, does he? He gives him, thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man, we might say, dares to ask which one. It was interesting when I was studying, uh, many of the commentators agreed that he thought Jesus was going to give him one of the ceremonial precepts to keep. Jesus didn't use the ceremonial, he used the moral law. He was dealing with morality. This young man probably felt quite sure upon all the points of the law. The Lord doesn't give him something new. He doesn't try a new angle. He doesn't try to, try to say, okay, you're not getting this, so let me, let me back up and try again. Folks, he simply starts and stays with the law. Every one of these commands that he gives, them, gives to the young man are based on the moral law. The very last quoted of those laws is really the key to understanding what Jesus is saying. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You realize what's wrapped up in that one commandment? All those other ones fall under that heading. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, guess what? You're not going to murder. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to steal. You're not going to bear false witness. You're going to honor your father and mother. Jesus has got his finger on the main problem. 
Our Lord doesn't give him anything new. He quotes, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now that alone should have opened this young man's eyes to where he said, ah, I see it. Because let me ask you, you're not being honest with me. This is before God. Which one of you would dare tell the Lord you've loved your neighbor as yourself? None of us. <laughs> I mean, do you, can you think about the level of arrogance and pride you'd have to be at to say, I have. No one in this room has. No believer ever has loved their neighbor as themselves. This should have opened this young man's eyes. It should have resonated his heart saying, I can't claim that. No one but God has loved as they should. So the young man does dare to ask the question, which the second part of verse 18 or 19, we don't see the young man being convicted of sin. In other words, we don't see him acknowledging, you're right, Lord, I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. So he continues to press the question. He continues to inquire as to salvation, eternal life by works, because he still thinks he's on the road to gaining it. You notice what hasn't happened? This young man has not come to the conviction of sin yet. There and again is where we make a lot of mistakes in evangelism. You have never brought a person to conviction. Your arguments don't bring conviction. Your proof text itself doesn't bring conviction. God does. Now, should you be able to speak on those things? Absolutely. I'm not saying be quiet. But if you think someone got convicted of sin because of your preaching or because of your explanation, you misunderstand God. It's not because of you. It's because the conviction of the Spirit. So we could stop here and say, why didn't Jesus, who's God, bring him to conviction right here? And this is, again, where we would split off from those who believe in total free will. Because a man didn't choose it. Jesus also doesn't bring the conviction. He's not convicted of the very thing he needs to obtain eternal life, although Jesus is not done with him yet. Verse 20, look at this. The young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? This young man is full of questions. What must I do? Which one am I missing? What do I lack? Now again, is the young man speaking truth as he understands the law? Yes. He's speaking as he understands it. Does he understand the law properly? Does he understand God properly? No. Is it the way he understands it? Yes. Now what is he saying when he says, all these things I've kept from my youth up? Do you think he's actually saying I've been perfectly obedient? No, what he's relying upon is that he has maintained a good character. He's been a good kid. He's been a good young adult. I've talked to elderly people over the years of ministry who took this same approach. 
This is not just the young that do this. There are people 80s, 90s, 100 years old who says, look, I've been a good moral character. They never come out and say, I've never sinned or I've never, I've obeyed all the law. But what they'll say is, but I've been a good person. They sincerely believe it and they believe that being a good person with the truth as they understand it's going to be good enough to get them there. He felt that at least in attitude or desire, he had kept the law without any fault. Now, you and I read this and we say, that young man, there's no way. You're right. He didn't. But his understanding of the law, remember, was what? One thing. He doesn't see he has to be perfect in all. He just says, I just need that one thing. And he says, what am I lacking? What's that one thing? Which one, Lord, tell me? Conviction doesn't come when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. What am I lacking? The young man spoke truth as he understood the law. The young man claimed to have led a commendable life. I work with young people every day during the school year. I, I teach seventh grade Bible, some of you know that. I teach them, I see them, I deal with good young people. But I'm also dealing with young people who are not believers in a Christian school. They are good kids. They are obedient. This past school year, in each one of my classes, the two top students in each class, both pushing A pluses, we're not even sure they were believers. Their understanding of what God is, their understanding of what's required, was being all stirred up. Because the Bible is so clear about what it says. I could tell you about these two people. These two young people are extremely high character, high quality kids. But that doesn't save them. You can get an A on a Bible test and not know Christ. You can talk about God. You can talk about church and not know Christ. You can attend church without ever missing a Lord's Day or a Wednesday or a fellowship and not know Christ. This young man said, what one good thing am I lacking? I got everything else. What one good thing am I lacking? We all know somebody like that. I've confessed to you folks many, many times. I might not have been to the same extreme that this young man was, but there was a time when I would have leaned this way. Thinking, I've been pretty good. It wasn't outwardly sin sinful wasn't out doing corruptible things that people looked at and said, what a travesty that is, but yet still a sinner. How could Jesus have responded? What, remember what the question, what one thing do I lack? He could have gone back and said the same thing he said to him earlier. Love, and, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, that should have went to conviction. That should have brought him to the place to say, wait a minute, I don't love my neighbor as I love myself. But Jesus, as he tells, talks to this young man, this young man felt that if there's anything lacking in him, he could make up for it. 
Now, you'll notice that this young man, when he heard the answer of Christ, he was highly pleased and elated. And he, he almost says it in a way, I've kept all these things from my youth up as soon as I was capable of learning. My mom and my dad, they taught me the right precepts. They took me to church as he understood the letter of the law. He just needed one more thing. Jesus is laying out before him an example, the example of love. He's using love your neighbor as thyself to show this young man just how corrupting sin actually is that lurks in our heart and lurks in our mind. None of us love our neighbor as we should. If your salvation depended upon that one thing, none of us obtains eternal life. Parents, this is hard to hear. You don't even love your kids enough to obtain eternal life for it. We don't. And yet, that's the point. Jesus is pointing to the very fabric of the problem. The sinner's depraved heart does not love the way it should. But yet this young man could not charge himself with any flagrant transgression of the law. By not understanding what the law required, he adds, what am I deficient in? What am I falling short in? What do I still need to do? What do I have to obey? If there's any other thing I can do, just tell me what it is and I'll do it. And Jesus continues and says in verse 21, Jesus says unto him, if thou will be perfect. Again, don't take this as Jesus saying this is the way to eternal life. He's teaching this young man about the sin that's lurking in his heart. If thou will be perfect, go and sell that thou hast. Give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Our Lord Jesus here brings the young man back to the test of the first table of the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. I ask us the question about loving your neighbor as thyself. Would anybody here in this room today dare say that they've loved the Lord thy God with all their heart? You see how quickly pride wells up in us? You see how quickly even in our redeemed hearts, that old sin nature still rolling around in there and you're saying, well, I'm, I'm close, i I'm pretty close to loving the Lord the way I should. I'm close to loving my neighbor. Really? Are we that close? Jesus is bringing him to this point that if he did this, if he was willing to go and sell, if he was willing to follow this divine command to part with his property, Jesus is using something and demanding an unusual sacrifice. This is not the means of salvation that he's offering. Again, he's showing him Young man, do you love God enough to make it? Well, we sit here today and we say, well, of course he doesn't. But do you see how he's pressing the question to the young man? Do you really love me enough to make it on those terms? The command of our Lord was a challenge to this young man's self-sufficiency and his self-righteousness. What Jesus is doing is 
showing this young man to prove his own profession is on faulty ground. He's trying his profession. Do you really love your neighbor as, you, as yourself? Do you really love God with all of your heart? But notice he adds a couple things. Go and sell. Give to the poor. Thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Even go down the line. Do you love the poor the way you should? If you love me and you love your neighbor as yourself, here's what Jesus' point is. It should be nothing for you to obey the divine commandment and to sell all you have and give it all up. If you truly love the way you should, that should be nothing to you. Now again, here we want to say, well, this should put an end to it. But notice, not only does he say to sell, but to give. Now again, you cannot infer from this that Jesus is calling every follower of him to say, look, if you really love me, sell all you have, give to the poor. This is not a command. This is an unusual demand that he's making on this young man, again, to reveal the wickedness of his heart. Remember, this young man's the one that said, which one am I missing? What am I lacking? Jesus keeps showing what he's lacking. And what does he keep doing? He keeps trying to find a way. But then Jesus touches on the part nobody wants to have touched. If you really love, you'll give up all your earthly possessions and follow me. See, many of us are okay with God kind of meddling in those areas, but then when God starts meddling with our worldly possessions and things, and he says what he used to say to us, would you be willing to part with all those things? If that will be perfect, he says. All Jesus is saying here, he's not telling him that if he goes and does this, this is the one thing. He's showing him that his love for God and his love for the cause of Christ has to be better than the love for himself. Folks, I've, we've mentioned this. There is no greater lover of you than you. You and I love ourselves way too much. Even in our redeemed condition, we love ourselves. And yet, if our faith were put to this similar test, would we part with it? So again, be careful of how we handle this young man. Again, I told you to be, and I wish this had a better ending in our mind. Verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, all we can infer from this is in true context, is the last thing Jesus said to him. Because he doesn't say when he heard these sayings, he said that saying. The saying about selling his possessions. What did he do? He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know what Jesus found? Jesus found the limit. He found what the man was not willing to do. Every other thing the young man said, which one is it? I can do it, I can do it. But when Jesus said, here's the true test, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, the young man went away sorrowful. He didn't ask any more questions. You see, remember, he's the one that said, tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. Why didn't Jesus just start there? Why didn't Jesus just say, okay, sell all you have, give to the poor? Because what Jesus was doing was showing this young man the wickedness of his own heart. He failed to observe and obey the commandments of God. 
He loved not his neighbor as himself. He didn't love God as he should. He thought of himself first and he went away sorrowful. Jesus was testing this man's character and his own profession about himself. Now again, there is no scriptural warrant to say that a person who has money or possessions is more sinful than someone else. But there is a, there is a point here. The more a person has, the more likely they are to rely and to lean on them. Everyone that says, I just wish God would give me more money, give me more riches, you know why he doesn't always give it is because we wouldn't handle it properly. Now again, that's not always the case. But we tend to have this belief that, oh, a person with possessions, they must not really be a follower of Christ. That's not the point. The point is this man's, this young man's heart was wicked and depraved, and yet he was a respectful and a hopeful young man. Yet that pushed him to say, I can't do this. This man's great possessions possessed him. Young man heard that saying he had to sell and give away. He wasn't willing to deny himself and submit to the very things that are disagreeable to what our flesh. He went away sorrowful. I don't know. I do not believe, again, if someone knows, I'm just speaking honest with you, I don't think this young man appears anywhere else in Scripture as later coming back and being converted. I, I could be wrong on that. I'm not aware of it. But the last thing we hear about this young man is that he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. It's sad. It's sad to think that here was a very respectful, hopeful young man who heard what was required and went away because his possessions possessed him. This young man did not go away with godly sorrow that led to repentance. He wasn't sorrow for his sin. He was sorrow that he would have to give up the world. The things of this world work death. Many a person has been led astray by the possessions of this world. Oh, there was probably some shame. What was his shame? That he was a sinner? No, he was ashamed he couldn't perform what he easily promised he would do. Have you ever not fulfilled a promise that you said you would do and someone said, I'll do that, and then you don't follow up? That's what it is. He felt shame that he couldn't do. And he walked away sorrowful, probably with the attitude, I can't obtain eternal life now. But he was also grieved. Grieved that he had not arrived at that perfection that he sought after. No question in my mind, he probably went away in despair. Despair over what? That he could not know the one good thing he could do to obtain eternal life. His possessions were dear to him. He chose rather to choose turn back to the possessions and drop his pursuit of eternal life rather than part with the present enjoyments of this world. Friends, this young man ought to serve, us, serve to us as a lesson for all of us. To remind us that there is no thing we could do. There is none righteous, no, not one. But it also reminds us of the glory that it is to be a child of God. To know and to understand the truth of the law and to understand the truth of what our own heart is. And to be able to say that we are in fact a child of God.
If you're here today and you do not know, you have never repented of your sins, and maybe you have been, you've grown up or you're in a church that says, look, just do this one good thing. Keep doing these good works. Listen, we plead with you to understand today that there is no good work you can do to get you saved and get you eternal life, and there's no good work that you're doing that's keeping you saved. The good works that you're doing are the fruit of your salvation. They are the evidence that you have been saved. They are not keeping you. They are not keeping you in heaven. They're not keeping you in Christ's hands. He did it all. But we're all called to repent and believe the gospel. We're acknowledging we are sinners. We cannot keep the law. We cannot do it. And even if it was just one good thing, no one in this room could do it and be good enough to obtain eternal life. Yeah, but what if? What if I had a billion dollars and I gave it all away? Wouldn't get you any closer to heaven. Wouldn't get you any closer to God. Some of the most generous people in the world, money-wise, money are unbelievers. And it's not getting them anywhere near Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel.